Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, Black UNC students demand more safety and dignity on campus. U.S. impact and influence on unrest in the Caribbean and what's fair in sports and race. Our guests and panel give their perspectives. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. A lot happening in our world today. We'll get our panelists' take on it, but first, we focus on what's happening right here in Chapel Hill. This past weekend, a video showing two men bearing a Confederate flag and desecrating a monument created to honor free and formerly enslaved blacks on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill has now drawn over 28,000 views on Twitter. The video was posted by a student run Twitter account, UNC Anti Racist Alerts, which also later posted in a tweet that the incident, quote, makes it clear that UNC must act now to address the demands issued by black student movement to improve safety of black students, faculty, and staff. And right now we have with us Associate Professor of History, Dr. William Sturkey. Dr. Sturkey, thank you so much for taking the time with Black Issues Forum. Let me just ask you, so often um, hate groups lean on free speech as a defense for um, hate speech. And we know that UNC Chapel Hill is a public university. Is there any other group on the campus that has had to face uh, this kind of hate speech and, and what's been done? Well, I got to tell you, it's really inconsistent because a lot of the students don't enjoy free speech. They've had signs taken. You know, they've been you know followed by police. Police have infiltrated a peaceful sit-in at one point. And even faculty can face repercussions. The head of the UNC press um, board was just denied his own reappointment because he was critical of the Silent Sam settlement made a couple of years ago. And so it's really inconsistent when you see people say, well, we must protect free speech, but the only people they're really defending are the folks that come on campus with Confederate monuments and scream the N-word at people. Well, uh, there's certainly something that needs to be done on the campus uh, because students are feeling threatened, but also there's just a lot happening at UNC Chapel Hill right now to cre create an environment that's that's not friendly to the students, but also for the faculty. How are you feeling as a faculty member, uh, a black faculty member on that campus, given all that's transpired? Well, you know, a lot of it can be very challenging because it has to do with the history of race. And as a black professor that studies the history of race in this country, we're constantly called upon by students, by the public, et cetera, to sort of try and sort out some of these major issues. And it just seems like we just can't get it right. We're, our leaders are influenced by so many political factors, you know, many of whom know very little about history. They just have their own sort of sensibilities. And we're just, we just keep swinging and missing on these things. And one thing that they've never done is to really consider the, the perspective of, of black students, faculty, and taxpayers. Because when you do that, it actually becomes pretty simple whether or not we should have buildings named for Klansmen and whether we should have, you know, Confederate monuments still standing in, in the year 2019 like we did. How long have you been a, a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill and why do you stay? I've been a faculty member since 2015. Um, UNC Chapel Hill, when I was in graduate school, was definitely my dream school. It's a great public institution. It's probably the best place in the world to study the history of the American South. So I have a very good job. I make, you know, more money than my father ever did. You know, my, my family came from a lot of working class background, 
But at the same time, it is more difficult, I think, to be a black faculty member than it is to be a white faculty member on, on many, many days because we're called upon, especially by black students who are really struggling. And so, you know, it's it's hard to think about equity when, you know, we're all getting paid the same, but our jobs are fundamentally different. And I think a lot of people are starting to just see other opportunities at other universities, and they just think that they can live a more peaceful, productive life without having these constant racial crises. So we'll see what happens in the future. We'll definitely see what happens. I appreciate you being here on Black Issues Forum, Dr. William Sturkey. Thank you so much. And right now, I'd like to welcome UNC student and president-elect of the campus NAACP, Jara Fay. Thank you so much, Jara, for, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Now, we know that the incident that occurred on the campus had to be troubling to, to many, many students. And both of these men had troubling uh, histories with racial violence. How did it make you feel, though, to, to know and to see what happened on your campus? To be frank, I was sick to my stomach. Um, I felt physically ill, nauseous, um, just to see that and to see like there were multiple videos of them saying and doing just disgusting things, you know, threatening to pour acid on the memorial, um, threatening to enslave black students and, and whip them and lynch them. It was completely disturbing. Traumatizing, and has anyone on the campus been supportive? What kind of support have you received from anyone on campus in terms of the adults or dean or? Um, multiple faculty members have spoken out against this, which to me in itself is powerful, being that even though they're employed by the university, they are still speaking out against these atrocious actions. Um, community members like the um, Chapel Carborough NAACP have spoken out against the recent events. But in terms and of providing just, some kind of emotional and, you know, emotional counseling support for students like yourself, when something like this happens, is there anything like that on the campus? I mean, to be frank, no. Um, I mean, we have our CAPS program, which is like our counseling services, but even then there are no real, or not to my knowledge, there aren't any um, programs tailored towards racial trauma. So we really have no way to deal with that. What you do have is a list of demands that black students have issued. Can you share um, who designed these demands? How many of them are there? And, and what are the most key to the students' concerns? Um, this list was um, created by the UNC Black Student Movement. And um, it's a list of 13 demands. And in my like opinion, all of them are like as equally important. So we have things as far as changing the way our grade appeal system is set up because there have been professors that have been known to penalize students who speak about their personal experience with racism. Um, things like getting more black mental health professionals in our counseling services since there's nobody that looks like us that we can talk to, that we feel safe talking to. Um, moving our African-American studies department to another setting out of the building that it's in, the building is named after a known white supremacist. So just things like that, just basically creating a campus that accommodates black students, well, I think I'm is what this entails. 
I can certainly tell that um, this has been you know, disturbing for you, uncomfortable, and um, I just want to say I'm sorry for what you're having to go through. You I also know from what you shared earlier that, that you had a choice um, in choosing UNC Chapel Hill and you're choosing to stay. Can you share um, why you chose Chapel Hill and why you choose to stay and, and fight? Well, UNC Chapel Hill, I had been saying that I wanted to go um, since I was in third grade watching the Tar Heels win the national championship. I was like, I want to go to that school. And so everything I did through like elementary school, middle school, high school, I say, I'm going to go to Carolina. I'm going to go to Carolina. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, uh, senior year, I was just really infatuated with going to Spelman. You know, I got accepted. I toured. I loved it. But I simply couldn't afford it. And But still, UNC was my dream school. And so I came here because I've worked hard and, you know, despite this campus not being built for people that look like me, I deserve to be here. Absolutely. And, 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 and Jara, um, thank you so much for your time today. And I, I wish you the best in continuing your studies at UNC Chapel Hill and uh, fighting for an environment that is, is friendly and comfortable for all students. Thank you. This past week on the global scene, unrest in the Caribbean hits home as major incidents in Cuba and Haiti create pressure for President Biden. In Cuba, the largest citizen protest since the 1960s erupted over critical shortages in food, supplies, and medicine. Economists and experts blame U.S. government sanctions and COVID. And right now, I'd like to welcome clinical professor of law at Duke University, Jesse McCoy and Lamisha Whittington of Advanced Carolina. So glad to have both of you with us. Let me open up with you, Jesse. Um, we know that the history of the U.S. and Cuba has kind of gone, I'll start from, from Obama. Obama era, era we kind of loosen uh, restrictions, and Cuba is opened up for trade with Americans, and we have tourism. Then during the Trump era, era things are tightened back up, and now we're in the Biden era. Those Trump restrictions are still in place. Where is Biden on lifting them in order to create some relief? Why should he? Why shouldn't he? So this is a very difficult foreign policy situation. I think it's important for people to understand that the Trump-era designation of Cuba as a, a state-sponsored terrorism um, is something that created an embargo, but he entered this on January 11th of 2021 on his way out the door. Uh, and what people also should know is there are forces in the American government who would like to see Cuba become an American democracy. Uh, so in doing that, during a pandemic, just a week after the January 6th uh, um, assault on Washington, D.C., uh, it, it would seem that politically, at least, he knew this would cause a problem for President Biden. When there's an embargo, anything that is a necessity is going to become incredibly expensive because there's not a channel for it to get into the island. Uh, also, a lot of people who are American but send back what they call remittances or money to family in Cuba, that stops when there's an embargo. And that was a large portion of what Cuban people were relying on to be able to provide for their necessities. So it's a combination of two factors. One is uh, the economy in Cuba already had challenges before this embargo happens, but these just exacerbate the problems that already existed. 
Well, Amicia, it just seems logical. We can sympathize with the Cuban protesters who are desperate for food, medicine, and freedom. Why not just lift the embargo and, and move forward? That's right. And I really agree with um, how Jesse gave us context on the embargo. And so here's the thing. Uh, before the Obama era of uh, the, the peace that was created, or semblance of peace that was created between Cuba, for over 60 years, the United States has been at odds with the Cuban government and the former Castro reign. This has been 60 years plus of this evolution. The United States had a hand in creating economic upheaval and disruption uh, through the Castro reign that impacted the local people of Cuba. So when you're talking about, you know, the United States actually backed the Bay of Pigs, an invasion and eight other invasions on Cuban soil to oust Fidel Castro. So the economic impact on communities has been long wrought. You have to think about when communities are war-torn, refugees, that is an economic deficit that we have had a major hand in in that feud with the government to, as Jesse said, you know, create more of a U.S. Uh, colonizing uh, impact on Cuba, but at the same time, the government of Cuba has also expanded its own people. And so that embargo and that impact over 60 years has actually cut and Cuba has lost approximately $130 billion in revenue to their folks. COVID-19 exacerbated that because it cut us, uh, Americans, from making the choice to visit Havana and other areas in a person-to-person -person travel. I think Havana was the only one that was allowed. So you were cutting tourist economic revenue for local folks right, in addition to the embargo, yeah, it's it's time to uh, move these Trump era. And as Jesse said, it's really not even a Trump era. That was on his way out the door. So we, we also have to be very clear about that. And we have just a few uh, seconds here. Jesse, I want to get your thoughts about what how this is going to impact our borders and immigration. Well, anytime that there's economic instability in people's home country, they're going to try to find a better life in a better way. Uh, the problem is that America has been very clear in its policies in the Caribbean, uh, do not come. I believe that's the direct quote that they were told. So we are going to have to see a change somewhere. Either we're going to have to see the people of Cuba who are in a position who are asking for a change in their government um, orchestrate the change that they want to see in order to become part of an economy that will stabilize their um, economy, or uh, we're going to have influx of people who are coming to America strictly in hopes of a better life, and we're going to be dealing with another issue of politics where it comes to the border crisis. Well, we have to keep our eye on it because it does impact us. Thank you so much, Jesse McCoy. Lamisha, please stay with us. We're going to talk a little bit about Haiti and welcome an additional guest. In Haiti, the assassination of President Jovenel Moise has prompted intensified demands for both political and financial intervention from the U.S., and President Biden is affirming support. Right now, I'd like to welcome to the conversation political analyst Steve Rao. Thanks so much for joining us. Steve, let's talk about Haiti. I mean, this is a country that for decades has been plagued with challenges from political corruption, natural disasters, economic instability. And now the first president to be elected in a, a fair elections is assassinated. Tell us um, what's going to be the impact on the U.S. in terms of uh, people either coming to the border or just us contributing more assistance to Haiti. Well, um, Deborah, it's great to be here. And, I, you know, I think, first of all, I, I found it interesting, you know, I went to Emory University and former President Jimmy Carter back in the late 90s was working on, you know, democracy in Haiti, uh, overseeing free and fair elections at the Carter Center. And uh, I just can't believe here we are in the year 2021 with 
a complete uh, failure of dem democracy in Haiti. So uh, to answer your question, I think, first of all, the foreign policy of the United States needs to be strengthening democracy and the institutions of democracy in many of these nations. And we can do that by providing more humanitarian aid, uh, lifting people out of poverty, making sure that we have free and fair elections, making sure that we have adequate health care and security uh, for the citizens of Haiti. And what that will do is actually enable those citizens to stay in Haiti because we want them to be happy and live their lives in freedom. And many are coming here uh, in dangerous situations through smugglers on ships, uh, very terrible situations to America. And so I think that's what we need to do. And it's so unfortunate the assassination of um, Mr. Moisey uh, is just an example of how fragile their democracy is. It's not enough just to send in a military presence. You have to increase the institutions, the strength of those institutions, and elections and, and those kinds of things will only be solidified uh, if they have that kind of support. And, and you know... Well, you make a really good point about the, the military support that's being asked for. Lamicia, what are your thoughts on what kind of support the U.S. can provide at this point and what our influence has been on, on the situation that currently exists? Uh, the historical context of our influence is very important uh, when we are navigating, as Steve has already mentioned, the necessary relief to actually bring economic stability, but also overhaul of the country itself. So historically, um, Haiti was actually the first modern state to abolish slavery, the first state in the world to be formed from successful revolt of the lower classes. But here's the thing, the United States wasn't happy about that because that came at the same time that we, as people of color, black folks, were still enslaved. And so historically, Historians even say that the United States also contributed a certain amount of revenue financing to stop that revolution. Guess what? Haiti was still successful. But unfortunately, at the top of the 1900s, the United States invaded Haiti and was actually occupying Haiti from like for 45 to 50 years, right? So that's the top of the 1900s. And while they were there, they actually changed the constitution of Haiti to allow for outside uh, uh, governments and, and individuals to be able to purchase land. So a similarity to gentrification that we're facing to in the United States. And so the United States has been a part of the destabilizing of the government. And so when the United States left that occupation after being, you know, forced by the Haitian people, guess what? It left that country in an economic deficit. So the United States becoming uh, the, the main provider of aid to Haiti wasn't happenstance. We destabilized a country that decolonized, we then recolonized them and then made them dependent on funding from us. That's the history of where we are. So we have to be really clear that, yes, to Steve's point, we have to support with aid that supports the democracy and the overall of the government that's needed to actually secure reform and housing and funding, especially in the wake of hurricanes that ravaged that country so often, in addition to the economic rapture that happened in the early 1900s and before. Thank you both for that context and also for your perspectives. Turning to racial justice in sports, fans of the standout Olympic sprinter Shikari Richardson are disappointed after the USA Track and Field Federation not only revoked her June 19th victory, but left her off the list of competitors for the Olympic Games in Tokyo. This was all brought on after she tested positive for marijuana. Also, since that time, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamie Raskin have penned a plea for compassion to the Federation, stating that the ban on marijuana was, quote, a significant and unnecessary burden on the athlete's civil liberties and that, quote, 
the continued prohibition of marijuana while your organizations allow recreational use of alcohol and other drugs reflects anti-drug laws and policies that have historically targeted black and brown communities while largely condoning drug use in white communities. I want to just open up with you, Lamisha, understanding the extenuating circumstances that, that uh, are fully known now uh, that Shikari was uh, coping with news of her mother's death. Uh, was this simply a case of rules or rules, or is there a place for the argument that is outlined in AOC's letter? Right. So first, you know, we definitely support uh, the mental health and, and love sending love to Shikari uh, in the passing of her mother and her healing process, because that is still a process, right, Absolutely. that will be on um, right. Next to the point of rules, regulations, right? Marijuana, let's cut it down. It's legal in 19 states, including in Oregon, where Ms. Richardson used the drug recreation, recreationally. So we talk about a quote that MLK said, there are two Americas, one in which the rules do not apply for certain folks, but for us, we have to be 10 times better. When I say us, I say black and brown Americans. Despite roughly equal usage rates, blacks are 3.73 times more likely than white folks to be arrested for marijuana. We have right now people in Mississippi, North Carolina that are in jail for having an eighth of marijuana on them. Whereas in these legal states, guess what? They can, folks are walking into boutiques to have a high class, uh, all expense iPad lounge to purchase marijuana of their choice. So when we talk about rules, rules apply to who exactly? And to demonize and vilify Shakari, this young 19, 20 year old black woman for coping in a disparate time of grief in a legal state, we have to be very clear what policy means when it can apply to our states, to our federal government, but then not apply to federal US agencies such as the US Anti-Doping Agency. It's the United States, so federally, it should be supported either way to support Shakari. So it sounds like what you're saying is, yes, this uh, we have the rules out there. Something needs to be done about the rules. And Shakari's situation kind of brings to light this for the specific circumstance that we're dealing with right now. And this, this is what folks who want to hold uh, people accountable are, are saying is, you know, well, hey, these are the rules. This is the law. And you'll have, you have to abide by it. So, Steve, you know, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, first of all, I agree with everything L.A. said. I mean, I think I feel I really feel for Shikari. I feel like she's being targeted here. It's unfair. And I think you have to be consistent and fair in the application of these rules. And uh, but to follow up on that, the way I feel about it is that I think there's a double standard here. I mean, marijuana is being not only legalized in many states, as has been mentioned, but we're even in North Carolina, we're considering it. It's being used for medicinal purposes. So, you know, it's not like she was using heroin or crack or something like that. And so... To or even a, um, a yeah. performance-enhancing drug. Yes, exactly. So, and, so, and it seems as though the, the league decided to, you know, exact additional penalty. They, they didn't have to strike her from the second yeah, list. Yeah, and, and this is an athlete. I mean, I played college tennis, but I just love sports. And I love sports because it's the one thing in our lives where we can just see these athletes come from all walks of life, regardless of their skin color, their race, their religion, uh, their sexual orientation, and perform at the highest levels for their nation. Uh, it, it's emotional to me when I see these athletes uh, get medals and stand on the podium and hear and see our Pledge of Allegiance, and you see the tears rolling down the face, and you think of all the sacrifices that she's made since she was a young girl. Uh, this is, this is life-shattering, you know, to take away that dream because of something like this uh, is a bit harsh, is, is very harsh. And so I agree with AOC's plea. 
Uh, I think that we need to get them to reinstate her back on the team if we can. And uh, moving forward, have rules that are consistent, um, that are in line with the current policies of the times. Um, yeah, so. yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, wrap with a, a question about just making things more equitable in this space period, because we've seen black women athletes facing persecution to a greater degree than other athletes in this space, and, and in all spaces, really, Lamisha. That's right. So when we see the sports world, let's be very clear. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks in our community who don't agree with the fact that it's unpaid labor for collegiate sports. That's another topic for another time. Wow, but we see one. the expense of our bodies, right, with uh, the lack of investment or it's illegal or against the rules to receive boosters or support. Uh, we've seen that the sports world has really treated black athletes and people of color as gladiators, property to be owned, uh, to be seen and not heard. When we heard the critique after the state section violence, LeBron spoke up. They were like, we don't want to hear your politics. We want to just see you play. Well, we are political because this nation made us political. So when we see the impact on Shakari, we also have to take in note that uh, Brianna McNeil, uh, who took an Olympic gold in the 100-meter hurdle 2016, she had a doctor-documented medical procedure related to reproductive health. She was disqualified this year as well because, guess what, she missed the drug test because she had an abortion and had to be out. Uh, there were two 18-year-old Namibian Olympic hopefuls who were, guess what, disqualified for having too much testosterone. You're policing black women's bodies by telling them that what is naturally within them disqualifies, disqualifies them for a race in which they have trained. And to Steve's point, that this is devastating. And so when we talk about the ban on the swim caps, this is a continuation of banning our bodies, silencing our skills, our gifts, our talents, and our abilities to do what we do best, like Simone Biles, and that's dominate and create historic feats. And so right now in North Carolina, across the nation, we're fighting for the Crown Act to actually Absolutely. make it is still illegal, right? To have our natural texture uh, hair in job employment opportunities. And we know, that there, we know that there is a case right, that comes right out of Hillside High School. A young lady had to, to have her braids cut during a softball game because the umpire said he couldn't see her number. That just infuriates me. Yeah. But there's so much more to say. But Lamisha Whittington, thank you so much for your insights always. And Steve Rao as well. We appreciate you both being here. Thank you. I want to thank today's guests for joining us. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.